Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask why Red Bull hasn't spread its F1 wings this year and look ahead to the Russian Grand Prix. So we're three races into the 2017 Formula 1 season and safe to say Red Bull really has been the disappointment of the season. We were all expecting them to be up there. All the talk so far this season, particularly on this podcast, has been about Mercedes and Ferrari. So for this edition of the Autosport Podcast, which is available to subscribe on iTunes and various other podcasting platforms, we thought we'd really delve into the the weaknesses and the problems that Red Bull has had that stopped them from really fighting up at the front. My name is Ed Straw, the Editor-in-Chief of Autosport. Joining me today first is Glenn Freeman, Autosport.com Editor. Now, Glenn, we haven't heard you for a few podcasts. You've been very much on the bench, but you've done some good chat in training. You've come back into the starting lineup. I hope you're ready with your A-game. Well, I'd like to know what kind of opportunity this is. Is it a legitimate call-up, or is this an in-season test, as they call it in F1, and none of the race drivers can be bothered to turn up? So I've been called up from the simulator to have another go. Perform well, slip me a few quid, and you might well be on next week. And also joining me is Autosport Plus editor Scott Mitchell, who's not been entirely faithful to this podcast. He's turned up on all sorts of various bits of media, BBC Radio, Motorsport TV. I presume he'll be up in movies and up for Oscars next year. But what I would ask 
is that you save your best performances for us and you remember which podcast made you. Well, much like uh, Kings Langley Football Club, who I got to witness at the weekend uh, retain their Evo Stick Southern Premier status playing against Sirencester, my intention is to bring absolute star quality to this podcast and uh, save my best till last. You are the non-league footballer of podcasts, I would say. And it's certainly good to get a little bit of non-league reference in here. I think we, we can have an offshoot podcast here, non-league football. For those who are wondering what that is, that's very, very low-level football that, uh, that nobody goes to. And I say that as a fan of it. And it's also disrespectful because they still play in a league. Well, I can explain to you all sorts of explanations about the Football League, but that's for another far more dull podcast. Should we talk about racing cars? Yeah, let's get, let's get back to it. So, Red Bull. Daniel Ricciardo and Max Verstappen, we were expecting them to be up there in the title fight. They've not been. They've got one third place between them. Glenn, disappointed? Massively disappointed. I think like most people who are following F1 at the back end of last year and over the winter... The expectation, as you mentioned in your intro, Ed, was that Red Bull would be the team that carried its momentum from the back end of last year into 2017. You know, we had rules that seemed to swing back towards aerodynamic performance being a major differentiator. We're used to Red Bull being a team that can excel in that area. But we've three races in now, some different types of tracks in different conditions. And I actually think we've seen very little from them to suggest that the chassis is up to it and to be fair to Red Bull I think they're starting to hold their hands up now and say it's not just about Renault's failings that the car isn't up to it either. Yeah it's really weird isn't it because coming into this season everyone was expecting you know a return to aerodynamic dependence and someone like Adrian Newey getting you know his motivation back to be designing F1 cars again and in the front line and we've not seen it and I just wonder whether or not in a world like Formula One where there is no such thing as a an, an immediate fix to something or or a golden bullet, this expectation that Adrian Newey is just one aero genius and and can change things for the better immediately. Maybe that was a bit misplaced before this season. Potentially, that's one of the factors, isn't it? There's no one person who is a magic bullet and can do everything and perform their magic, and that probably reflects the fact that when Red Bull had its period of dominance before, it wasn't solely Adrian Newey. It was the team he built around him that was able to do it. Just looking at Red Bull's performance, they've been a very long way off. You always think about how realistic it is for teams to make up the gaps. But if you look at the three races so far this season, best car in qualifying in Australia, 1.297 seconds off pole. Best performer in China, 1.355 seconds off pole. And the best qualifier in Bahrain, which was Daniel Ricciardo, 0.776 seconds off pole. And we've seen one third place for Verstappen in China. And other than that, it's fourth and fifth places. That's a pretty big gap. It's not just a bit of an underachievement. That's a, a spectacular miss from Red Bull, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive. And if anything, I think we could quite comfortably say that they have entered 2017 much worse off than they ended 2016, which is quite alarming, really. I find it quite interesting that there was so much talk in the run up to these new rules that Adrian Newey had, you know, the fire was lit underneath him again. He was back in love with Formula One. And then I think last time out in Bahrain, Christian Horner was in a press conference where he said, oh, well, you know, Adrian still has to split his time between a lot of projects. He's not not too involved in this. So they already seem to be backtracking from that. One thing that I found really interesting, I think this was said in China, Daniel Ricciardo said that he believes that behind the scenes, Mercedes and Ferrari have made so many changes over recent years that they've essentially caught up in, in terms of their aero departments so they are a match for Red Bull, at least in those areas now. Effectively, they've just created an Adrian Newey out of many different people, haven't they? Many different departments, whereas Red Bull and other teams have benefited from, from Newey's genius as, as as one individual leading a team before. You know, Ferrari and Mercedes have just sort of put that uh, structure in place to, to, to benefit from, from sort of a collective rather than one person. 
Ed said before, didn't he, that Newey's previous dominant cars were part of a collective. And it maybe it's just that rather than trying to find a way around not having Adrian Newey, they've actually just copied the structures he put in place at Red Bull that proved to be so successful. It's the thing we always see in Formula 1. It's always a constant process of raising the bar. Red Bull raised the bar in that period of 2010 to 2013. And in fact, 2009, you could argue as well, even though Braun won that season. And then we've seen Mercedes raise that bar further. Ferrari seems to join the party as well. You see this from drivers. You see this from teams. That's what it's all about. Just because they were really good a few years ago doesn't mean that they struggle a bit in a tricky engine period and then suddenly come back. And I think what we've seen from the car, and we saw this right from the start of testing. I remember when the Red Bull was unveiled, Gary Anderson, our technical expert, the former Jordan technical director, Stuart Jaguar man, he said that that car lacked wow factor. And you could see exactly what he meant Look at the Ferrari turning vanes, barge balls, the front of the side pods. Really refined, very detailed aero-wise, and it seems to work. The Red Bull was just a lot more simple. And we all thought, well, okay, we'll get to Australia. They'll unpack 138 boxes that have got 8 billion parts in. It'll be a B-spec car and they'll be away. But we've we've not seen that from Red Bull. And that's a, that's a big worry. That says to me they are just behind aero-wise. And that's why the drivers keep complaining they haven't got the downforce. But is that B-spec car what we're going to see in Spain? Because that was the telling quote I thought last week was Helmut Marco saying that was it going to be a major revamp of the chassis for Spain? Now, everybody brings big packages to Spain, but it seems that Rebel are laying it on quite thick. And I wonder, is that things that weren't ready for Australia? Because the lead times would suggest that you can't react to having a bad first three races of the season and then suddenly bring something for May. So maybe they've just spent longer and longer refining these things at the factory. But that begs the question to me, why do you think you can sacrifice these early races? They're all worth the same number of points. Marco last week said, well, we caught up a 40-something deficit after the summer break to Fernando Alonso in 2012. But let's be honest, that 2012 Ferrari was not a good car. Alonso was dragging it into a championship fight almost against its wishes. So I think it's quite naive of Red Bull to keep doing this slow start and, oh yeah, we'll catch up. The best you can really do with that is what they did last year, which was finished a distant second to Mercedes. They'll be hoping that if they can't actually turn that car into a race winner, they'll be hoping that they can become second best because at the moment I'm I'm a little bit worried that it's sort of similar to the McLaren situation from 2012 to 2013 where they go from having a, a, a genuinely competitive car and then this much vaunted concept that they've got this year, which is sort of simplistic and a bit of a different concept that they all say they've got faith in. Well, isn't that what McLaren chased for 2013? They wanted a, a different car and they've actually ended up regressing. And McLaren couldn't rescue that over the course of the season, and I'm sure that they were churning about plenty of uh, plenty of chat about, about getting back on form. The bottom line is nobody starts the season with a cunning plan of being a bit behind, and then they'll catch up. Red Bull's plan will have been exactly. to have the best car from the start of the season. The fact they haven't means that something is incorrect. It may have been their objectives were just not quite aggressive enough. They haven't been able to find a downforce. The others have. It may have been they've missed their targets. We saw the suspension regulation interpretations changed a little bit it's clear that hasn't entirely helped Red Bull they've come out with a car a bit lacking in downforce the rear the rear grip doesn't look brilliant that could be down to the mechanical platform you can achieve obviously achieving a good mechanical platform is important in terms of the way the aero works so that may have cost them a little bit but it's very very difficult to find reasons to think that no matter how big a Spain upgrade is it's going to be transformative even if we take the Bahrain performance which in the hot temperatures there was a lot stronger and Bahrain isn't perhaps the most representative circuit. It's not a circuit where downforce often pays you back in quite the same degree as some of the other circuits. But that gap was just under eight tenths. 
well, suppose Red Bull can put eight tenths on the car. That's an enormous amount to put on the car. Not only do they have to do that, but to get to the front, they've got to put that plus whatever Mercedes and Ferrari put on the car. That's a huge ask. It's not completely impossible, but it's a very, very ambitious target to set. And I doubt if anybody in that team is sat there thinking, yeah, we're going to be winning the Spanish Grand Prix. It's going to be a very, very long way back. And I think, realistically, the best we're going to see is them coming on as the season progresses, becoming a victory contender, but way too late to be a championship threat. Championship spoiler, maybe, but not a title winner. Well, that's assuming that they've got an 8 tenth deficit to find, because obviously the everyone... Red Bull, Ricardo, Verstappen, Horner, they weren't sure why they were so much more competitive in Bahrain. Yeah, eight, eight tenths is generous. Yeah, exactly. So if they're actually, you know, over a second off, which is what I think the gap that everyone was referring to in, in China the previous weekend and in the build-up to, to Bahrain, they, they didn't expect to be able to find this this magic fix. And, you know, eight tenths is a big, big gap. Well, over a second, I just can't, can't see that, especially when in Bahrain, which was a much better performance, it, the performance of the car was still very peaky. And it, one of their concerns has surely got to be well, where did this sudden improvement come from? But second of all, why why was Ricardo so poor when he switched to the soft tyre in the race? Because all of a sudden that went back to being miles off the pace and he fell back down the order. I think there's two things to consider there. One is that quite a few teams, for some reason in qualifying, were closer to the pace than they'd been at the other two races. So who knows what was going on with the cars at the front exactly. And As also, indeed was the midfield pack. The midfield pack was closer, so we saw... A slightly more condensed feel. Yeah, that's what I mean, absolutely. I think the first stint of the race in Bahrain, when Bottas was having his tyre troubles that were caused by having the wrong tyre pressures, I think that made Red Bull think they were in the fight, when actually those cars in front of them should have been clearing off down the road in the first stint as well. So I don't think there was a turnaround mid-race in Bahrain. I think that the first stint was an outlier caused by Bottas's problems. And Red Bull would be wise not to place too much weight on, on that stint of, of that race. Yeah, and it's worth noting that by the end of the race in Bahrain, Ricardo was just under 40 seconds off, having been right with him in the first stint. It's not just down to the soft tyre struggles. There's a lack of pace in that car still, even if it's closer in Bahrain. Maybe it was the higher temperatures. That was one of the things suggested. Perhaps it was a bit of circuit characteristics and the fact everything's closed up as well. If that's the most generous you can be, that they're 40 seconds off by the end of the race, where they were basically no seconds off in the first stint, that paints a pretty bad picture for Red Bull as well. <laughs> I don't really see that as any more positive than what we saw in the first two races. We've talked a little bit about the car. There's clearly progress to be made there. But there's also the engine side. We thought the Renault engine was going to be the Achilles heel. Going into the season, Renault was saying, well, it's going to take a while for us to get engine parity. So we always expected the performance profile of Red Bull Renault to start off at its weakest and then get stronger. Perhaps not quite as, as weak as it is now. But where do we think the Renault engine package is right now? Well, it's clearly playing a significant role. Um, it's As I say, it's nice to hear Red Bull saying that they are taking some of the blame as well. That's not something we're hearing from McLaren and Honda at the moment, is it? That, uh, you know, there couldn't possibly be anything wrong with a chassis that's much further down the grid. But we, we seem to be in a very similar pattern to last year on the engine side, where Renault haven't quite got everything right over the winter, possibly caught out by the gains that the other manufacturers make. I think quite often the ones who are behind as you said about the chassis updates for Spain, it's right, we need to find this much. And they almost assume that the people ahead of them have run out of things to find. Uh, so we seem to be in a similar position where now Renault have been talking about a big upgrade for Canada. That worked quite well, I seem to remember, last year. But again, I just think from the team and the engine supplier, it's unacceptable. You can't keep doing this thing of having to sort of write off the early races of the season 
and then oh yeah, we'll, we'll get our, we'll get our stuff together by mid-season. That's not how it works. You can't talk about uh, you know in testing. You can't say oh we've we've had this problem with the MG UK. We're going to have a fix for Melbourne. Then turn up in Melbourne and it actually turns out that the fix is oh we bolted last year's MG UK on because this one doesn't really work. And I talked about uh, running the the new the 2017 MG UK in the Bahrain test last week, which is five kilos lighter than the than the old unit. The hope was that it might be ready in time for for Russia. Yes, four races into the season, you've only just got the final part of your launch engine. You would imagine, you know, the the, the basic twenty seventeen spec engine before you even pile on the upgrade. So, and then if we get to the you know the main part of the European season with all the big upgrades in in Spain, I, I don't understand how it's got itself into this position where it's ended up making not the same mistakes as before, but finding itself on the back foot yet again in an engine era that has been absolutely nailed by Mercedes. Renault's argument is that this is kind of the second generation power unit. They've made big architectural changes to the V6 engine itself. Obviously, we've had the problem with the MG UK, switching back to the 16 one, as you said, Scott. But I think the point is, they say we've got to take this step and risk a little bit of unreliability to take a big step forward. But then when they're putting old parts on the car, it shows there's fundamental problems. It always comes down to what your level of understanding is of what the problems are that you're trying to address. And it's a little bit of a concern that Renault doesn't seem to be quite there. There's no question that Renault is playing a part in Red Bull's struggles. It's not all of it. The simple fact is that Red Bull needs more power and it needs more downforce. That's a, that's a fairly simple equation. And it's the one that F1 teams have been chasing for, for a long time. But the other thing that Red Bull does have to take full responsibility for is the fact that that underperforming engine or incomplete engine or whatever you want to call it isn't being married to a perfect chassis. You know, how many times have we heard this season Fernando Alonso say how brilliant he's driving in that McLaren or McLaren say, oh, you know, we know our car's fantastic. Red Bull's hold, holding its hands up and saying, you know, we haven't got the car spot on either. Well, I think that's a degree of honesty from Red Bull that we're maybe not seeing from the... Uh black and orange cars further down the grid that look like early 2000 arrows. And I actually wonder if Honda's struggles are maybe letting Renault off the hook ever so slightly whenever they have these little dips in form. If they were the third of three manufacturers rather than the third of four with a fourth one that was struggling so badly, maybe it would look worse for them. I think we all hope, as as neutral fans, we just want to see a third team up there. We're enjoying the Mercedes-Ferrari fight. If you add Ricardo and Verstappen to that, then you've got five drivers fighting at the front because let's face it there's only one Ferrari involved and we can say we can say with certainty that someone like Verstappen he's going to be such a hot property in F1 for for 10 15 years it, it seems inconceivable that he won't get a chance in a title winning car at some point but Ricardo we want him in the title fight sooner rather than later and for all this talk of McLaren and Honda wasting the talents of Button and Alonso in previous years and Alonso this year and this week's issue of Autosport magazine takes an in-depth look uh, Alonso is a wasted talent. Ben, ben Anderson's delved very deeply into that, but at the moment, Verstappen and Ricardo, they're they're wasted as well. They don't want to be be sitting there fighting over scraps, do they? Fourths, fifths, and sixths at the moment, they're not even in the position that, say, Felipe Massa and Valtteri Bottas were in the 2014 Williams, where okay, fifth or sixth is your maybe your natural position, but you can fight for podiums or maybe a front row in qualifying that sort of thing when you know when the circumstances align at the moment they are almost making up the numbers in between the lead two and then there's that big gap and then the midfield and Red Bull is sort of hovering somewhere in between and we don't really know where it lies and which one it's closer to. And there will be interest in their drivers from other teams even though they're under contract beyond this year. Daniel Ricciardo is someone who's of interest to Ferrari as is Max Verstappen. Daniel Ricciardo's Italian's coming on quite nicely as well you'll notice. 
So they need to deliver for their prize assets, the drivers, cars capable of their of their talents. And I think as you said, Scott, Verstappen's got plenty of time on his side. But Ricardo last year, remember after he lost the Monaco Grand Prix victory uh, to a Red Bull pit stop blunder, he made some comments about the fact that he knows that time is starting to ebb away a little bit. He's still got a lot of years, but you can't hang around being good enough to win the title without being put into a title winning situation, without it starting to eat away at you a little bit. Well, Sebastian Vettel showed after one bad year uh, in 2014 that, you know, these Red Bull juniors do start looking elsewhere and considering fleeing the nest if things aren't going well and they think there's a better offer elsewhere. Red Bull doesn't have sort of un- unbreakable loyalty from these drivers just because it's brought them up through F through to F1. So I think, you know, it's probably a bit early to be considering that those drivers will be looking around because... As Scott said, they're sort of they're in a bit of a no man's land between the front and the midfield, so that they're not having a disastrous season. But I can completely take the point that once those long term contracts reach their conclusion, Red Bull's going to need to have turned it around at some point and stopped giving us this early season disappointment and late season promise. Because after a while, that's a pattern that will start to grate on drivers. And if you're a, if you're a Ferrari or a Mercedes, and you know that absolutely nailed on, you've got a, a Hamilton and. A, a Vettel in, in your car for 2018 maybe you just need a bit of a placeholder for one year and you know that you might be able to nick a Verstappen or a Ricardo in 2019 if not next season you know why would you not just have a safe pair of hands next year and with with the intention of swooping in for for 2019 and at the, at the way it is at the moment you know we talked earlier about the fact that you know Nui isn't this aerodynamic golden bullet perhaps that he's been seen as before and Ferrari and Mercedes do have the infrastructure now to be long-term giants at the front of Formula 1 again after sort of for especially for Ferrari a bit of inconsistency for Stappen and Ricardo you've you've got to be looking at that as a as a better long-term option especially when as obviously we've heard yet again you know Red Bull does like to throw around the odd quick threat doesn't it got to remember as well 2019 is not so far away and these drivers will be thinking about long-term decisions it's not necessarily just for next year. So this is going to have an impact on what happens then. Remember when Fernando Alonso signed for McLaren the first time around, all those years ago, he actually did his McLaren deal at the end of 2005, then did the full six season with Renault, then moved for 07. So these are long-term contractual negotiations and thoughts. And I think everything Red Bull's doing now will have an impact. Because if Ricardo and Verstappen don't have faith in the team, they are going to be looking elsewhere. It's interesting as well to see Red Bull starting to make a few noises in in the the political world. There was a lot of moaning about the engines in the past. Helmut Marko, in an interview with the official Formula One website, made some noises about the need for an independent engine. He said there are enough companies around that could supply, so we expect from the new owners together with the FIA to find a solution at the latest by the end of this season. If that doesn't happen, our stay in F1 is not secured. Maybe I need to give uh, someone like Marko more, more respect, but I can't help but find those comments utterly boring. And oh, they're certainly boring, just, but just, they are significant. Yeah, I just think just if that's actually how you feel, you put up or shut up, don't you? Well, those quotes would feel more significant if any of the previous threats had ever been followed up on or come close to being followed up on. This one could be more significant because at the end of 2020 is when all the team contracts with the commercial rights holders run out. So that feels like a bit more of a, a real chance for someone to break away. But... I saw I saw him say that last week, and I didn't put much weight behind it. Really, it's the usual thing of uh, Red Bull believing that somehow this is going to shock people into action or shock people into giving them giving them whatever they feel they need or want to be competitive. You know, I didn't see other teams saying that 
uh, aero regulations needed to be equalised or Red Bull's aero advantage needed to be given to all the other teams when that was winning them world championships. I don't really see why the fact they can't get themselves a good engine is anyone else's problem. But it is an interesting case study for Red Bull. It does mean that they're getting a little bit jumpy about this whole situation and it would be very, very easy for Red Bull to find themselves the kind of the best of the have-nots rather than in among the elites and then that will completely change the whole the whole way they look at things. But it's an interesting scenario, this whole thing for Red Bull. Because they have to demonstrate that their success a few years ago was not just a flash in the pan, a period where they had an extremely effective chassis development, aero development program in a period of frozen engines, and that they can actually repeat that. Because that's the ultimate test for a a mega team, isn't it? They've got to have more than one coming, if you like. They've won a few races in the hybrid era. They've won five in total, two last year and three in 2014. But they've not been a consistent force at the front. Does anybody actually think we're going to see Red Bull being at Mercedes Ferrari level this season? Yeah, I think before the year's out, we could get to a stage where it's a three-way fight at the front. It's, are they going to be a complete match for those two teams uh, in outright pace? That's that's a big ask, as we were saying earlier. The gains they have to make are so big, while the other teams are still learning new regulations as well and making their own steps. But I'd like to think that maybe after the summer break, we're in a situation where they are close enough that through exceptional performances from their drivers or clever strategy, they're in a position to cause headaches for the other two teams. Um, But as I said before, I I just still think that's not good enough. Of course, we are still seeing Red Bull, or certainly its drivers, making a few headlines. During the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend, uh, a week and a bit ago, Max Verstappen was in the headlines. Uh, I think the idea is that Max Verstappen hates Brazil now. Is is that the case? Uh, that's what I heard. Um, this is quite interesting, especially to talk to you about, Ed, because you were there when he said the offending quote. Um, and then, as is so often the case on Grand Prix weekends, that media session was sent back to us on the news desk and we dealt with it and turned it into a story. The offending quote was used and caused uproar on the internet. But I think you should give us a first-hand perspective of witnessing Max Verstappen Talking about the issue in general, the, the problem we had with Massa in Q3 and how the line was delivered and whether or not people should be up in arms about it. This is a classic case, not so much of a storm in a teacup, but not a storm, not a teacup, really. The the media session happened maybe, I think it was an hour and ten minutes after qualifying finished. Uh, there were six or seven of us there, maybe a couple of more. A couple more. Verstappen talks about how Massa compromised his qualifying session by diving past him late in the warm-up lap and that caused Verstappen to back off a little bit he said we should show more respect so it was just a normal driver a little bit irritated with another driver just moaning a bit he was asked by Michael Schmidt the German journalist from Automotor and Sport whether he'd spoken to Massa about it which is a valid question perfectly valid question because it often often happens and Verstappen's response is well he's a Brazilian you know so there's not much to discuss now it was a slightly wry comment. It wasn't accompanied with a vast belly laugh and lots of backslapping. He was just saying, no, I haven't spoken to him about it. And as often happens, he made a slightly offhand comment, the kind of comment you get in any kind of international environment, if you like. It was just one of those things that was just a driver showing a tiny bit of character. He wasn't attacking Brazil. He wasn't trying to make a massive international incident. He wasn't declaring war on South America on behalf of Holland or or Austria where, where Red Bull's based. It was just one of those one of those things. We used the answer because in context he was asked, that's what he said, that's fine. We didn't make a big thing of it. Others 
for the most part, ones who were not in the F1 paddock, should we say some of the third-party media, were up in arms about it like it was some great attack and it got spun and spun and spun and then Massa was asked about it and he made a comment and Verstappen had to say, oh, well, it was out of context, which certainly in our case, it was not out of context, but I think in other areas it was. So it's just a classic case of a little offhand comment being misused by people. And I think it's a real shame Yep. That people complain about drivers not having personality. It's just a little amusing comment from Verstappen. It's the kind of thing loads of them say. And I think it's incumbent upon the world and the people listening to not be idiots about this stuff because it really reflects badly on them. It's, it's ridiculous that Verstappen had to comment on it, release a statement via Facebook. It's ridiculous that then Massa had to kind of come back and say, oh, no, it's all right, we're all friends. They both know it was a rather stupid situation that got stirred up and stirred up and stirred up and then they have to back away from it. But I think it just reflects really, really badly. And I'll just say to people, yeah, he did say it. It was presented in context, certainly by us. And people just have to read something and say, well, is that a massive attack? Do you know, if Verstappen wanted to say, all Brazilians are idiots and terrible, I imagine he'd have said it in a little bit more depth and explained his reasons rather than just making an amusing offhand comment. So to all those who are involved in that story, I would request that they grow up before stoking another one of those ridiculous storms in teacups because that's the kind of thing that just diminishes sports coverage, Formula One coverage, and makes drivers scared to say anything. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. You know, I think it was it's an outrageous reflection on the way of the world in 2017. I think that it became such a big thing. I wrote the story from your uh, from you attending the media session. And, yeah, the reason that went in there was if you have a story where somebody's slagging somebody off, it is valid to follow up, well, has he spoken, from a reader's perspective, from a journalist's perspective, has he spoken to him? Uh, That question was asked, here's the answer. It covers off the fact that he's not going to speak to him, which is a serious part of the conversation. And the quote is a slightly tongue-in-cheek throwaway line, and that's how it should have been treated. That's why it was in our story, um, because it, it covered off a valid valid question that was asked by another journalist and I just think do we really live in a world now where little comments and jokes like that uh, are really are going to be reacted to like this you know imagine a rivalry you're a big cricket fan Ed imagine a rivalry like England and Australia over the ashes think of the amount of mud that's thrown around very much in jest between those two nations whenever there's a big ashes um, series coming up and that gets that gets stoked up by the media but in a in a different kind of way. There's not a huge overreaction when one country's player says something about another country. No, they're constantly at each other. And it's part of the rivalry and in some ways part of the fun. And, you know, incidents like this just suck any personality or potential fun out of F1 in the future. I do think that Massa didn't help the situation with the way he reacted. And I, I think he was stoked up a little bit by the reaction that he saw from Brazil. And he probably could have he could have calmed things down then rather than pouring more fuel onto the fire and then calming everything down once we'd had the Verstappen apology. And I, did, I was amused by the Verstappen apology because, wasn't it, it was apologising really for anyone who may have been offended rather than apologising for what he said. And I don't have a problem with that either because he knows deep down there was no reason to apologise for what he said. The scary thing is that I think the apology was in reaction to comments and reactions on social media that was suggesting he should maybe be a little bit worried when he goes to Brazil later this year. And that is why he was... That is one of the reasons, I believe, he was forced to come out and say something to try and calm everything down. And the other thing that worries me is later this week, when everyone turns up in Russia, I bet they are both asked about it again when the issue just needs to be let go. 
everyone needs to get over it. Yeah, yeah. I think if anyone wants to say anything genuinely outrageous, and people can, then they sh- it shouldn't be shrugged off. It should be tackled. But in this case, this is this was just ridiculous. So let's move on and go back to the driver market. We've heard Renault make some comments about not being interested in Fernando Alonso for next year. Ha. Huh. But this seems an interesting one. Obviously, Alonso's on the market. He's had lots of success at Enstein. Both of his world championships were for that team in its previous Renault guys about 38 identities ago in 2005 and 2006. Actually seems like quite a logical move to me. Logical or it's either that or Sauber, isn't it? Like how many other neutral teams are there on the grid that he hasn't infuriated at some point or thinks that he's actually got a chance of fighting for titles at? Well, that's very true. And, and he is put into that position where an up-and-coming team like Renault that seems to be on the up, single lap pace is good, able to score consistent points now, it seems. That is a team that should be able to make gains and has the potential to be up at the front if, of course, Renault can get its act together fully on the on the power unit package. I quite, I'd quite like to see that in many ways. Yeah, I think it's kind of reached a situation of where else can he go, as Scott just said. It probably does make the most sense. It's It would be signing up to what he thought McLaren Honda would be. I believe it'd be a team that was you know, going to be maybe in the midfield trying to break out and then try and take them to, to greatness. So that does mean he's lost, if he makes the move for, say, next year, he's lost three years that he could have spent doing that at another team or it means he's set himself back to where he was at the end of 2014 when he was probably thinking then, I'm running out of time to get more championships here, so this is a big risky move I'm going to take. He's sort of going to have to do that again. But I can't see him turning up anywhere else. I, I, I don't see why... Unless Lewis Hamilton shocks the world and retires from F1 at the end of this year, I can't see why Mercedes would be interested. I don't think they need him alongside Hamilton. They just don't need the aggro. I'd be very surprised if if Ferrari want him back, especially if they've got Vettel back in love with them after the difficulties of last year. And Red Bull, I don't think they're ever going to go down that route now. Maybe once upon a time they might have felt they needed an established world champion to to guide them, but they've got young very talented drivers now that I think they can have faith in. So after that, where are you looking? Does he really think that Williams could make a big enough step to become a major contender? At least with Renault, you've got the potential for that. And I really like the sound of an Alonso Hulkenberg driver lineup as well. Yeah, I like the idea of uh, Hulkenberg finally being able to go up against someone who, if he beats him, it's not just going to be then downplayed as the person he's beats actually not very good and you know that also means that Hulkenberg would have the personal satisfaction of even if he still manages to see out his career without you know a race winning a race winning team or anything like that he knows that you know all due respect to, to Jolian Palmer you know a driver I like and I like his his progress Hulkenberg's not going to take the sort of satisfaction of out of out qualifying uh, Palmer by half a second than he would beating beating Alonso by half a tenth every time out would he? No, absolutely. And it would be a very strong driver lineup to have those two there, Hulkenberg and Alonso. And I think it would make a lot of sense for Alonso. I guess the real question there is for Alonso, you've got a choice of staying with McLaren Honda or you can go to Renault that's already showing some signs of progress. It actually might be quite an easy decision because for all of the excitement surrounding the Indy 500 bid with McLaren, that's only going to buy so much happiness and amusement from Alonso, isn't it? Because it's all going to depend on Honda getting its act together. And we're seeing comments about that there was a new story emerging on Monday about the possibility of McLaren and Honda trying to seek some performance breaks for for its engine and this isn't very positive is it if you're having to go cap in hand to try and get a little bit of a boost it doesn't say we've got a mega engine down the road to introduce and I think Renault at least does offer that tangible evidence of proper improvement that McLaren Honda 
briefly looked like it might be showing last season before before this year's slump. Well, all these lack of options, uh, you know, that Alonso's got in Formula One and the the unlikelihood of uh, McLaren Honda sorting itself out. That's why um, that's why he's he's bound for a for a full time 2018 IndyCar drive, isn't it? With with Andretti or someone like that. <laughs> a few people are getting excited about that possibility. I think I think he's been fairly clear that the Indy 500 is the one that appeals to him. But he did turn up at last weekend's IndyCar race at Barber Motorsports Park in Alabama. He turned up in the commentary box and he was there signing autographs and being being the big star there. Obviously, there was a lot of interest in him. He was with the Andretti team. But the real star of that weekend was 26-year-old American Joseph Newgarden. That's his first IndyCar victory for Penske. He's won three races previously. There's been a lot of excitement that this guy could be the next American open-wheel star, the one that America's been waiting for for quite a while. I guess the closest thing we've had recently, Ryan hunter Ray, who won the 500 and and the IndyCar title, but he never seems to have caught the public's imagination. Sam Hornish Jr., previously in IndyCar in the first decade of the century, was absolutely on fire in winning championships. But it's been a long time since we've had a, a real American open wheel star in that part of the world. And New Garden might just be the one. Yeah, I think it surprised me when I saw that that was, that was New Garden's fourth IndyCar win. And, you know, you mentioned someone like Hunter Ray, who who has achieved proper success, but... I was amazed to, to to learn that that means he's already on the he's already on the same tally as uh, as Ray Hall, and he's doubled the number of wins that Marco Andretti's got in IndyCar. And you sort of think like three of those four wins for for Newgarden came with either you know Ed Carpenter Racing or the Carpenter Fisher Hartman tie up, and you just sort of think, wow, this this guy is uh, yeah he he's achieved this success with with, with these teams. He's gone in it's, it's what third race of the season. Um, one and now he's one with with Penske in a in a really cool way as well. You know, shoving Simon Simon Pagano out the way, the reigning champion, and and getting properly in there with with a driver of you know Scott Dixon's reputation as well. There's a lot of hype around this guy, and I think it it does genuinely seem to be justified. It'd be excellent for IndyCar if they can get an American star. They they seem convinced that that's what they really need to catapult the series back into the American mainstream. Um, they've been desperate for one after the heyday of sort of, you know, heading into the mid-90s when you had all these big names, almost, you know, racing family dynasties in America. Uh, there were generations of of these star families coming through. But the really interesting thing for me is that Newgarden has wasted no time convincing us all that Roger Penske made exactly the right decision to move Juan Pablo Montoya aside to make room for him. You know, it was only two seasons ago that Montoya lost the championship was it on count back in the end I think it was a, a points tie with Dixon he lost the championship at the end of 15 having won the Indy 500 that year so after one iffy season to to get rid of him um did seem like quite a ruthless move from Penske at the time but Newgarden's paid that risk back in spades already I think and Newgarden's also shown on track that he needs to assert himself he's not afraid to do a bit of rubbing with his fellow Penske drivers, the more illustrious names who've had who've had more success than him. And that tells you this is a guy who has got a reasonable amount of experience in IndyCar now under his belt. He's still quite young. This is his sixth season. He knows the importance of saying, I'm ready, and not just thinking he's an apprentice. He has to go in straight away and show he can be a master. I just like the fact that that, that race win in, in Alabama just seemed, seemed to have everything. He, he had that 
uh, that robustness on track to 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 get to force track position from Pagano. You know, he showed the pace when he needed to when he when he pit slightly earlier than those around him and used you know to nick a horrific F1 phrase, used the undercut to then launch himself into position, forced his way past uh, Dixon when he fell back behind him, which was which was crucial. And then he you know he was putting pressure on on the driver of Will Power's ability late in the race when when Power got a got a slow puncture. So you know you could look at that and. The result sheet will show is that the new garden won that race and he's now what, third in the points or, or something like that but he is he's properly it's that word again he's asserting himself on this indycar field you've only got to look at the fact that the two guys ahead of him in the points uh are sebastian borde and, and scott dixon and how long have those guys been around and been the you know the, the dogs proverbials in american single seater racing yeah and i would expect new garden based on what we've seen this year to be not too far off the championship lead come the end of the season he could even win the title it'll be interesting to see how america reacts to him because he's certainly someone who's, who's got real ability i was going to say potential but he's delivering on it now and of course new garden is someone who spent a little bit of time in the junior ranks in the uk and that's the area we're going to be looking to now on a far less happy note we didn't talk about the life-changing injuries suffered by 17 year old billy munger in that horrific formula 4 accident at donington park the weekend before last in our previous podcast because we we're still waiting for an official medical update so to talk about this now, Stephen Licorice of Motorsport News and also Sports National Desk has joined us. Stephen, can you just run us through the accident and give us an update of the latest on Billy's condition and everything that's happened over the last week, week and a half? So the accident happened in the third British F4 race at Donington Park, not the weekend, just on the weekend before. And it was on the third lap of the race, there was a group of cars were very close together Unfortunately, just ahead of them, Patrick Pasma's car was stationary for whatever reason. We're not yet clear if that was a spin or if it was a mechanical problem with the car. And Billy Munger was part of the group of cars just behind. And as two cars moved in front of him to avoid Pasma's car, Munger, unfortunately, was unsighted and went straight into the Carlin car of Pasma. As a result of that, it was clear at the time it was a very serious crash and... We later learned that both of his lower legs were amputated. And just it's worth mentioning that from what we've seen from the onboard, it was completely impossible to avoid that impact on his part. Absolutely. Those two cars in front of him moved at the last minute. There was no way that he could do anything to avoid Pasma's car. It was a fast part of the track. And like I said, it was early on in the race when the cars were really bunched up close together. Yeah, they'd just come out of the old hairpin, hadn't they? So they were coming up through... And they've just gone through Schwantz curve, haven't they? So yeah. that's got to be what it must be the, with the exception of maybe just before the final corner, like the fastest part of the the circuit for those cars, just as you come up into that section. So it's just, yeah, worst possible place on the circuit. Absolutely, yeah. There was nothing Munga could possibly do to to have avoid avoided that crash. Now he's obviously got life changing injuries, and it's very early in the recovery process. So everyone at Autosport wishes him all the best. But out of this pretty horrendous situation. It's been quite interesting to see something quite positive happening in terms of the the Just Giving page, which is justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash Billy Munger 23, if anyone wants to take a look at it. They launched a, a fundraising drive to help him with his recovery. And, and at the time of talking, the, the, the money raised is in the vicinity of three quarters of a million pounds, which is pretty astonishing. And we've, we've seen all sorts of big names donating to it. Obviously, it's a horrible set of circumstances, but it's great to see this kind of reaction. Yeah, like you say, it's, we've seen both sides of motorsport over the last sort of week and a half. Uh, we've seen the, the bad side. Yes, crashes, serious crashes do happen. 
But then to have this sort of response to it has been quite incredible. I don't think anyone was really expecting it to have touched so many people from, from like you say, famous racing drivers like Jensen Button and Max Verstappen, but right down to fans, uh, young fans even, just donating a couple of pounds from their pocket money just, just to try and help uh, Billy in his recovery from this. I've, I've enjoyed uh, hearing a couple of the stories of you know Billy's close friends that have... Uh, that have either dug deep financially or, or emotionally, because I know Devlin De Francesco, who Billy raced in karts and in was it when he was MSA Formula, I guess, uh, or, or or no, or it was last still season. British F4. Yeah, yeah, so last season, you know, Devlin donated twenty six thousand pounds, so sort of like in, in your face, Jensen and Max. And I know that the the Perez is um, Steve donated what was it ten thousand pounds, and Steve's son Seb raced with uh, has raced with JHR, so knows knows Billy through that, and I, on. On the emotional side, I know um, Senna Proctor, who races for, for Vauxhall in the British Touring Car Championship, him and Billy are, are really, really good friends. And Senna was with, with Billy in hospital last week. Tom Ingram, British Touring Car Championship points leader, has been, you know, he, he set up the fundraising page with JHR team boss Stephen Hunter. So just everywhere you look, how it's it's been heartwarming in a heartbreaking situation to just see how everyone has pulled together from, like Stephen said, from, you know, everyday racers right through to the superstars. And I think there's been a suggestion that Billy might race again in the future. Obviously, we've seen drivers in this, in this scenario, Alex Zanardi, for example. I, I was quite taken by a tweet from Frederick Sose, who isn't a massively well-known name in motor racing, but for those who don't remember, he is the guy, the, the quadruple amputee, who actually raced in the Le Mans 24 hours last year. He didn't suffer his injuries in a racing accident. That was down to an infection that... That, that spread very rapidly and, and led to the amputation. But he put out a tweet that said, uh, I'm ready to help Billy Munger, and I'd be very proud to share a steering wheel with him in endurance. Be strong, Billy. And this is the kind of thing we've seen people pulling together and offering support. It's very easy for this support to be kind of a bit insincere and yeah, trite. But I think what I've seen here from what's rather tritely known as the motorsport family, I think it, it's genuine, isn't it? There's been a, a real chord-struck among people who who want to help him and want to offer support both within motorsport and among the motorsport fan base as well. Yeah, it's quite staggering. Like you say, that broad reach of support from various different people. And uh, in terms of whether Billy does race again, it's clear that this is a kid who's massively into motorsport, really genuinely loves it. He's a driver coach with a karting team as despite still only being in the early stages of his own career and that comes across in his response to to what's happened in the terms of yeah he, at this stage it looks like he does want to race again which is quite incredible but goes to show just what sort of a person he is yeah i love that he did that sort of um, after being woken up brought out of the induced coma for the first time and starts trying to work out if he can operate a clutch on a on a student with his hands that I mean what a guy like what uh, is used it's used as you say actually um he, sometimes it's used as a cliche but the, the this kid's a, a fighter isn't he you know you have that you know you just sort of see something someone where you go oh this guy's he's just a warrior and uh, as you said earlier everyone here wishes him all, all the best in what's going to be a you know long and, and sometimes really difficult recovery period yeah and that's the thing it is going to be it is going to be hard for him there'll be I'm sure good days and bad days but Hopefully, this money that's been raised will give him a greater chance to to rehabilitate in the right way. And I guess the other thing to say about Billy Munger is he was he was a serious driver as well, wasn't he? He was he was a quick a quick kid. 
Yeah, he, he almost uh, claimed his first British F4 win at Rockingham last year. He just missed out with a uh, car problem on the with, I think, two laps to go. But he was a serious sort of contender in the series and going into his second year this year. Um, he's already taken a couple of podiums and, yeah, he's certainly a quick driver, was one to watch for the future. And certainly that kind of ability will still be there if he does choose to come back down the line. So we wish him all the best, whether he wants to come back into racing as a driver or continue his work, as you say, he was driver coaching or do something completely different. Hopefully he's now got the opportunity to focus on that recovery for as long as it takes and then get his teeth into something else uh, something else in the future. So we wish him all the best. And just a reminder to everyone, if you want to contribute to the, the fund, it's justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash billymonger23. And again, everyone at Autosport offers their, their best wishes to him and his recovery. So thank you, Stephen, for joining us. And subbing back in for Stephen after that update is, is Glenn Freeman just so we can have a bit of a look at the Russian Grand Prix this weekend. It's going to be Vettel versus Hamilton, isn't it? It's going to be Ferrari versus Mercedes. Given how close things have been so far this year, does anyone have a particular favourite for for Sochi? Yeah, um, I think Mercedes and Hamilton this time. I I don't believe that Ferrari's only hope comes from high tyre degradation races or anything like that. I think the pace is genuine, the threat is genuine, but I believe that Sochi will be a circuit that isn't hard on tyres and that removes a key variable... Not so much that weakens Ferrari, but it's one less distraction for Mercedes. And I think we saw in Bahrain that Ben Anderson explained it very well, actually, in his race report, that there were lots of factors going on in that race for Mercedes. And it maybe it created the opportunity for Ferrari to capitalise and, and to punish them, really. But I think here, I think Mercedes can maybe just focus on its its sheer pace advantage, which is narrow, um, but it can it can ram that home. And I believe... Hamilton seems incredibly motivated by this this Ferrari Vettel fight that he has on his hands as well. So I'm expecting uh, I'm expecting them to deliver. But I wouldn't be surprised if we get proved wrong as well. My my heart wants uh, to see a, a Bottas win. I'd love for him to he bounced back from an embarrassing situation in China where he spun and, and got pole, and now he needs to bounce back from a race in which he was uh, he was he was quite sort of comfortably left behind by the Vettel Hamilton fight fight in front. So my heart wants to see Bottas in the mix. My head says it's going to be a straight fight between Vettel and, and Hamilton. And I think Mercedes made their own problems in Bahrain. I, I, I don't think they'll do it two times in a row. And I think Hamilton's quite keen to, to bounce back and make it 2-2. Bottas is an interesting one, actually, because he's, he's quick around Sochi. I remember in 2014, he'd done a good uh, a good banker lap the first one in Q3. Is that where he threw it all on the line? Yeah, he absolutely yeah. laid it on the line. The tyres just went away right at the end of the lap. Mm. He'd probably struggle to nip pole. It's not impossible. Could have split the Mercedes, but it was a it was a proper. I'm going to go all out effort. It was a bit like what he did in Austria as well when he had a massive go. Yeah. To try and get pole. actually that. the Massa took. So it's a track that suits Bottas well, and hopefully he can deliver that kind of consistent performance throughout qualifying in the race that allow him to be at Hamilton's level or close to it, which I which I would expect him to be. I imagine he's uh, he's going to be a little bit too far away from Raikkonen for them to to replicate their their shunt from what was it was it twenty fifteen they came together. Yeah, when, on the last lap. Which, By uh, too far away, you mean too far ahead. I mean, I was being polite, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, Raikkonen was a bit too far behind to launch that move in twenty fifteen. So completely agree. The thing that stands out to me, Ed, is uh, you always the gambler in you always provides us with the betting odds before each race uh, when when it comes time to preview them. The standout for me is Kimi Raikkonen out at 20 to 1. 
in a car that's won two of the three races we've had this year. I mean, that, that says so much to me about how underwhelming he's been at the start of this season. Well, it's incredible, isn't it? He's had, was it two fourths and a fifth? He's very much been the, the fourth driver in that, that leading quartet. And at Distant times, fourth. Yeah, exactly. And at times have been, been messing about with the, the Red Bulls. So he, He's managed to be fifth in a quartet. Yeah, that's very true. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah you've uh, you've shown my mass up there somewhat. Uh, yeah, very much so. And I, I think there's very little hope of I can change that based on what we've seen so far. Bahrain has been quite strong out in recent years. Nothing remarkable last time out, and that's very interesting in the dynamics. You see, Valtteri Bottas is in there at five to one, so that's effectively a quarter of the odds of Raikkonen. He got pole in Bahrain. He's been on the podium this year, and even though Bottas hasn't quite strung together a, a complete weekend in which he's delivered fully on his potential and ability in both qualifying and the race it's shown that he's quite rightly cast certainly by the bookmakers as the far stronger of those two number two drivers if you want to call them that scary when you look at the the options outside of the sort of the big three teams that that massa is uh is seventh best according to the bookies and you can get him at 250 to one which is uh which is a fairly chunky price and obviously it's would take a pretty special Russian Grand Prix for, for Williams to win, but that's still pretty telling, isn't it? Exactly, a long way out. And the Red Bulls sitting at 33-1 to 1 for Max Verstappen and 40-1 to 1 for Daniel Ricciardo. It just says what we were saying earlier, that Red Bull isn't really at the races. Again, if Mercedes and Ferraris all drive into each other, there's, there's a possibility there, and they're at least close enough to be a bit of a nuisance on occasion in the right circumstances, but they're just too far back. So if it is Hamilton versus Vettel, you've asked us for our verdict. What do you think, Ed? Well, the bookmakers have Lewis Hamilton at eleven to ten on, and Sebastian Vettel second favourite at seven to four. I'm inclined to agree with them. I think this should be a Mercedes and Hamilton weekend. One of the main reasons is the tyre allocation. We've had super soft, soft, and medium in the past couple of races, but gone more aggressive here. So it's ultra soft, super soft, soft. By and large, we've seen perhaps Mercedes struggle a little bit more on the harder tyre compounds. I think in all probability, given Sochi is pretty low deg or has been historically, we're going to see a one-stop race. You'll start on most likely the ultra softs, which you use in Q2, and then finish the race on the super softs. So there's just going to be one strategic window of opportunity for Ferrari to get ahead. Even if Ferrari is on the pace of Mercedes and close on track, it's quite hard to pass at Sochi. And I can't see an overtaking manoeuvre to happen unless a Mercedes driver gets it wrong. And we could... In fact, we should have the two Mercedes drivers first and second, given their qualifying uh, advantage on the grid. And that should mean that Mercedes has got two cars. They can cover whatever Vettel does. They don't have to be too paranoid about the undercut. And it should be an easy race to execute. But then again, Mercedes has had track position in all three races so far, and it's managed to fail to deliver on them on two occasions. So it's close enough for little tiny details to make all the difference. But isn't that exciting in itself? You know, Mercedes... I'm sure there were races where they didn't fully optimise what they were supposed to do strategically or didn't execute the race in the best way over the last three years. But all that would have really done is maybe allowed whoever was third to get closer or possibly uh, switch around which way Hamilton and Rosberg were at the end. This year, you know, even smaller errors than they've been making over the last three years are punished with far greater consequences just because Ferrari are in there. And uh, I think that that's great for Formula One. Long may it continue. Yeah, Hamilton's spoken quite fondly of the fact that now we're in this position where these small these small margins are, are now are now turning races on their heads. And, and, and I think he likes that. He's the sort of guy who, who revels in in those conditions. And, and yeah, as you say, absolutely brilliant for for Formula One after a period in which we've just had in the main two two guys fighting at the front. 
This is going to be that battle that we've been kind of hoping is going to happen between Vettel and Hamilton. A bumper year for the Autosport podcast then. Exactly. Plenty to talk about. Plenty to talk about if you're both selected for future podcasts. So from me, Ed Straw, thanks very much for joining us. And thanks too to Glenn Freeman, Scott Mitchell and Stephen Licorice for their fantastic insight. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the Autosport podcast for free via iTunes or various other podcast platforms. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Autosport magazine out every Thursday and Motorsport News as well out every Wednesday. And remember, you can also read all the latest news, features, insights into Formula 1 and the whole of motorsport world on autosport.com. That's both in the build-up to the Russian Grand Prix during it and after the weekend. We'll be back next week with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking, for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.